Ladies and gentlemen, he plays trumpet for a living oh, and a few other instruments, by the way. He is a performer. He is a talent scout. He is a businessman. He's a pilot. He's a scriptwriter. He's a car enthusiast. He's a mentor, a family man, an all-round nice guy. We love him here. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Mr. James Morrison. Good to see you, James. Excellent. Excellent. Well, firstly, welcome back. Thank you. Great to have you here. It welcome is great to, to be here. Welcome to Door of Hope. Welcome to Tasmania. By the way, uh, Tasmania, over the years, you've been here a few times. I remember seeing you at the Albert Hall uh, back in the yes. 80s, I think it was. Yeah. And, uh, you did what I you must did. have been 10. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you did what you did last night with the multi multiphonics. The multiphonics, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where you played two or three or four? Yeah, two. So I got up to three notes last night. So three yeah, notes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Can you get to four? Or? You can do four, <laughs> yes, yes. On a good day with the wind behind you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. Now, speaking of Tasmania, have you had a chance over these years to have a little look around? I have, I have. My wife and I really love Tassie, and we um, we take time when we can over the years. Unfortunately, not so often uh, these days. But to take a drive around, and uh, it's obviously I'm speaking, I'm preaching to the converted. But it's a, such a beautiful place, and we have friends in various places around. You know, over the years, people we've met around Tassie, and we go visiting. So it's. Um, it's, there's something about Tassie. I think it's to do with the fact that it's an island that helps you get that feeling that you've you've sort of gone away, and uh, the the pace here is different. I don't say slower because there's a lot of action down here. I mean, there's a lot of action here at Door of Hope, <laughs> but somehow people seem to have more time. There's a feeling that they take more time, and it's uh, we we come down here when we need a break from what's going on in the rest of the world. It's mm. very nice. Yeah, a lot of people tell us that, don't they? They do. Yes, yeah, hey, uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for hanging in there the next day and speaking to us like Not this. Not at all. Uh, we're in a series. You can see these TV screens here yep. at the moment. We're in a series called Stronger. Right. And we started this, I think, about four weeks ago in, on Father's Day, mm -hmm. where um, one of our speakers came up and spoke to us about the strength that fathering requires. Mm -hmm. We then went into week two of Stronger in Joy, then week three, Stronger in Confidence, and then Stronger in Faith. And so in the context of this particular series, that we're in at the moment today we're talking about stronger in legacy and so my first question before we go there before we go there just quickly describe to us the family in which you grew up in and mm -hmm. where you grew up I was born in Burrawa in western New South Wales it's a very small town the population's about just this block here um, and uh, there was no at the time there was no hospital I was born at the doctor's house and my dad uh, is, a, is a minister, he's a Methodist minister and um, he was preaching, it was a Sunday night and I was early, I wasn't due yet and mum played the organ in church and um, she was uh, not at church that night, she wasn't feeling that well so she, she um, stayed home, anyway she went to the doctor's house and I was arriving while dad was preaching and dad says you interrupted me the night you arrived and you've been doing it ever since <laughs> <laughs> he was in the middle of a sermon and they said I'm sorry um, pastor the, your son just arrived so uh, he raced away but um, uh, it was we moved around a bit in, in those days the Methodist minister was moved every two years to a new parish and um, we went from Borowa to Blaney from Blaney to Orange and then finally ended up in Sydney and um, but those early years, uh, I have an older brother, John, who's a drummer, so let's go easy on him. Um, that's a musician joke. I'll just give you one so you understand the context. They say, what do you call a person who hangs around with musicians? 
a drummer. Yeah, okay. All right. It's a pity he's not here to enjoy it. You have such a wonderful drummer here. I'm sure he likes the gags. Yeah, thanks, mate. It's all right. As you know, the drummers then tell trumpeter jokes, so, um, which aren't ja funny at all. Little does James realise that I was once you a, were drummer a drummer in my past life. Okay, I can speak slower. I asked Hey, I'm here till Thursday. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. That's, that's an oldie bit of goodie. But uh, then um, it was, and so it was, a, it was a fantastic family. I have a younger sister who's five years younger. She was born when we were in Blaney. And um, it, it was all, of course, with Dad being a pastor and Mum running everything else to do with the church. It was a life growing up in the church as we travelled around. And, uh, and with music, the only music I heard till we got to, sit to Sydney was mum playing the organ or uh, playing the piano at home, and that was it. And there were no brass bands or anything like that in those towns in those days. When we got to Sydney, we went to this much bigger church. I'd never seen such a thing. They had two pastors, and I went, like, what would you do with the other one? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, and uh, the first morning I was sitting there in church, and the, the new minister, whom I, whom I never met, um, was, uh, was preaching and he was coming to that point in the sermon and I knew having heard thousands of sermons it builds up it builds up it builds up and there's the bit where he's going to bang the bible on the pulpit or do something or you know it's, it gets to the point and when he got to that point I was all ready for him to do something and he reached behind the pulpit and pulled out a trombone and launched into this gospel number and the cart the curtains parted and there was a gospel band with horns and everything and I went hallelujah <laughs> so, I'm going to do that. And it was, it was a moment where I saw, I said, that's definitely for me. And um, I, I took up playing brass there. And um, there was a brass band at school. And as the years went on, most of my musical development was happening at church. And then from the age of 13, and this was an interesting thing, I started working in nightclubs. Now, with a Methodist minister for a father and nightclubs, they generally don't go together. And they're sort of real old style. Dad's not, not like that, uh, uh, certainly not now. But, but back in the early days when he was, uh, you know, a teenager, Methodists don't dance, let alone go to a nightclub, you know. And um, this was, now he's got a son who's a jazz musician, two of them, in fact. And um, it was an interesting time for mum and dad because they wanted to encourage my music and my development and my career. So I started, and nightclubs at 13 I mean for any parent regardless of, of what their you know um, faith may be or their religion it's a it's a dodgy proposition I think I'd put it that way and um, I remember mum and dad saying they said well you've got this gift and we believe you've got to use it and you've got to develop it and it looks like the path is this one this is what's been presented to you and so um, off you go and um, I went uh, into the nightclubs and I fell foul of, of some of the uh, um, things there. I, I, because the, the, the way it happened just quickly was um, uh, I was too young to be in a nightclub. But I had a tuxedo on, I had a trumpet in my hand, so no one said anything. And the guys in the band wanted me in the band. They were all really old. They were like 30 or something. Um, it's funny how that seemed really old then and now it's so young. Anyway, um, uh, in the breaks, they would just go to the bar. And I thought, if I don't, someone's going to go, why aren't you at the bar? You're underage. I mean, it was a silly thing, but it's what you think when you're 13. So I went and stood at the bar with them, and the bartender said, what do you have? And I didn't know the names of any drinks, and I heard people talking about boats. That's, I'm not kidding. I thought they were talking about boats because they kept saying a schooner. Um, you know, and I thought, what are they ordering? I don't know what's going on here. I could just say, I'll have a beer, but they'll, go, they'll ask me what kind or something, and I won't know, and I'll be caught. 
and I had this great fear of being caught in this, you know, underage. So I thought, what is the name of a drink? And then I remembered from a movie, I'd heard someone order a screwdriver. I didn't know what it was. So I just said, I'll have a screwdriver, thanks. And I thought, I hope I haven't just ordered a tool. Um, <laughs> and, um, and he brought me an orange juice. That's what it tasted like. It was just an orange. Of course, it has vodka in it if it's a screwdriver. But I just, I went, oh, it's just an orange juice. And I thought, I actually thought, this must be the adult name for orange juice when you're in a bar. called a screwdriver. I thought, okay, cool. I said, I downed that quickly because I was free thirsty. I'll have another one of those. And of course, I proceeded to, to, to get drunk right there at 13 in a nightclub. And um, this continued for a couple of years. And the last time I drank was when I was 15. And this is not a thing about drinking, but it shows this path. And mum and dad got very concerned because they knew something was up because I was not right. But um, I came to this realisation where I had to make a decision. I said, I can see where this leads and I can see where I was headed. Do I go down that path, which looks like a dead end, literally, um, or do I go the other way? And so I, I, I of course, went the other way and um, got through all of that. And um, then uh, uh, I met Don Burrows, who was a mentor to me from the age of 16. And he introduced me to audiences all over the world and my musical development kept going. And there came a time, I ended up sort of running the band at the church um, for a while and then ended up on the road. And I've been on the road ever since, I guess, touring. Mm. Um, until last year, I sort of have put down a few more roots with my new music school. So, but it's, um, I can't remember what question I'm answering, but I'm sure it includes <laughs> something about what's in a screwdriver. That's okay. We'll get to the future. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to the future in a moment. We're okay. about the past. Let's now talk about the past. The present. The present. Tell okay. us a little bit about your family. You had one family member on stage with you last yes. night. Tell us a bit about your family. Okay. Well, um, Judy and I have been married for 28 years. I should, I should know that. Um, uh, 28 years, and we have three sons, uh, Harry, William, and Sam. Um, uh, Sam's 23 and uh, William you saw last night is 21 and Harry's 19. Harry we call the Wookiee because he's six foot six and got long hair and he looks like a Wookiee. <laughs> and sometimes I think he talks like one too. Um, but um, he's the bass player. I have to tell everyone, he was, I, I said last night to people, he was supposed to be with us yesterday um, and uh, he got a chest infection and it got very bad um, the day before. And um, they took him to the hospital, they gave him a lot of antibiotics, and they said, he may come good tomorrow, he may not, but probably he shouldn't fly. And I thought, it's Friday afternoon, where do I get a bass player on a Saturday night? And so my first choice, one of the greatest bass players um, uh, I know, is Phil Stack. I thought, he's going to be working. I rang and said, mate, you're not free tomorrow night. He said, nah, sorry, I'm working. I went, oh, yeah, I thought so. And I was about to say, got any ideas of who might not be working? He said, yeah, I'm down in Tassie. I went, Really? I thought he'll be in Hobart. And I said, oh, and I'm thinking Hobart Lonsons. I'm thinking, that's no, not going to work. And he said, yeah, I'm in Lawney. And I said, really? <laughs> I said, and I'm thinking, what are the chances of Phil Stack, the best bass, jazz bass player in Australia, being in Lawney last night when I need a bass player? And I said, what time's your gig? And of course, he could have easily said 7 o'clock and that'd be the end of it. And he said, oh, we don't start till late. We start at 10. And I went, we start at 7. We'll be done by 9.30. Where's your gig? And we looked on a map and I said, oh, it's about 10 minutes away. And I, I just said, okay, this has been organised for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said, great, mate, I'll see you at the gig. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Good. With, um, with this idea of legacy in mind, mm. what have your children taught you, especially about yourself, and what are the, some of the most significant things that you would like to impart into their lives? 
Well, I guess the obvious thing people would think is me being who I am as a musician, and them, two of them, uh, Sam's very musical too, but he's chosen another path, but Harry and William being musicians, um, that I'd be teaching them music. That's actually the one thing I didn't teach them uh, until quite recently. Um, I thought there's so much expectation that I will teach the music and that they'll become musicians that that's one thing I definitely should stay away from. And I remember when they were five and they joined the school string program, they're playing violins, if you call it that, um, when they're five, you know what it sounds like. And, and, and Judy, my wife, said to me, well, the boys aren't practicing, we've got to make them practice. And I said, no, 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 no. And she said, but of all, I said, kids don't practice when they're five, you know. And she said, but of all the kids, ours should be practicing. I said, actually, you've got that backwards. Of all the kids, ours are the ones, because there's a chance they will be very musical. They may be, they may not. But if they have that gift, the one thing we don't want to do is make them practice. And if that's news to anyone, it's something I recommend. If you've really got some, if you've got a kid who's headed other paths but they'd like to enjoy music as well, absolutely. Ask them to practice, do what you can, cajole them, all those things, because they get more out of it. But if you actually think they may really be a musician, that's going to be their life. Don't go anywhere near making them do anything with music. You've got to wait, and they will. If they're really musicians, they'll discover it, they'll get inspired, and you won't be able to stop them. But if you come in too early and start putting barriers around it or forcing them to do things, when they do it, they'll still discover it and love it, but it will always have this thing that it was you, it was yours, it was your mission to get them to do it. I stayed so out of it that when they discovered it, it was totally theirs. They said, I've come to this, and uh, they have. It, it, I've watched many, many people over the years, and um, it works so much better to let them find it. You put the instruments in front of them and around the house and things and sort of and let them hear lots of music, absolutely, but wait for them to discover it. And um, they did. So to impart to them, of course, there came a time when they said, we're really serious about this, will you help us? And I waited till they came to me and said, will you give us some... I said, look, I've stayed out of it and let you... They formed a little rock band, they were playing in the garage, they actually went into competition and did kind of well, and I still had told them nothing about music. And finally they came to me and they said, we want to play jazz like you, can, we, can you tell us some stuff? And I said, that's when I said... And this is what you've got to do if you're going to mentor someone. I said, well, okay, but if I do, now the tables are turned. Now I'm actually going to give you tasks and I'm going to really get you working. If you, if you want me to help you, I will, but we're not going to mess around. And they said, yeah, yeah, we want to. And from that point then, I started uh, giving them lots of work to do. But um, uh, I guess what I want to impart to them, though, is nothing to do with music. I will because I have information to give them, but um, that's a side issue really what you want to impart, if I could, and I hope to, but if I could, I'd like to impart to them what I got from my father. And um, it was a sense of what life is about. It was his faith. Um, it was his view and his inspiration um, of, of why we're here and what it's about. And that, within that, you can play music, you can you know, do anything you like. Um, it doesn't matter. It's, I always like to point that out to anyone I'm mentoring. You know, this big mission we're on to be great musicians or to learn this or to learn that. It's just something to do while we're here for what we're really here for. I mean, playing the trumpet is not actually what I'm doing on the stage. It's an activity. What I'm really doing is sharing a gift, is trying to spread inspiration, is trying to do that thing that brings us all together and makes us realise. And you can do it with a trumpet, you can do it driving a bus, you can do it um, fixing cars. I went and saw the bad wheels, that's fantastic. It doesn't matter. Um, what matters, I do believe, is to use the gifts you've got, though. If you do have a gift, yeah, you, you have a responsibility to use that. But um, it's not about the gift, it's about what it's for. 
So if I can pass that on to them, it, uh, that will be that'll be mission accomplished. Good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, continuing with the theme of legacy, the yep. discovery and development of young, talented musicians mm -hmm. right across Australia. In fact, and uh, uh, it's always certainly been important to you. Something I've certainly yes. admired as I've looked on from a distance that uh, you're involved with several youth bands and sponsor young musicians. So before the next question, mm. we're going to take a look at a clip of the recent Australian Story program that was on ABC TV. Oh, yes. Did anyone see that, by the way? Mm -hmm. It's fantastic, wasn't it? And uh, it's featuring you, your family, and good friend and mentor. You've already mentioned Don Burrows. Let's have a look at this first clip. Mm. I guess just share us a little bit more about that. What about this kind of development? What is it that uh, is so important to you? I've always been a teacher all my life and in all my travels and tours we often as much as we can do workshops they call them master classes sometimes but you know lessons with people um, after a while of visiting other institutions each time you're there you see things you go that's good and sometimes you see things you go if I had a school I'd do it like this well over many years you end up with a very long list of if I had a school <laughs> and it's time to uh, to get on with it but also, I would have these connections with people while I was there and show them something. You'd see some lights come on and two weeks later you'd be thinking, now how are they going with that? And you just couldn't stay in touch with everyone. You couldn't follow that up. So there was no mentoring. It was all teaching. And not to say that teaching is less than mentoring. It's different. But mentoring includes teaching, but it's another thing. And so I was doing lots of teaching and I did some mentoring. There'd be people that I would take um, one young singer that I met when she was 16 at a high school where we were doing a workshop. And um, I took her under my wing. Her name's Emma Pask. And so I mentored Emma, well, for 20 years. Um, I'm giving away her age. Um, but, uh, but, uh, and I've done that with a number of people. But I wanted to do more mentoring. I felt that that was an area where I could really um, give something more. And to do that, I needed to have ongoing relationships with the people that I was teaching so I could start mentoring them as well. And um, it was time to start the school. So beginning of last year, we've been going nearly two years now, I started the school. And uh, it's a university course, it's a bachelor degree. And um, so all the people at the school, mostly, are sort of around that age, they've just left high school, 18, 19, 20. And um, we have a couple of uh, mature age students. So we say mature age, not mature students, because they're still jazz musicians. Um, but uh, some of them are drummers. But um, <laughs> but uh, to you and Don, what is it? What is it about you and him? Is it common interest? Is it does it go deeper than that? What was it that Don contributed to your development? He he provided an example, and much as I've said, the main thing I wanted to do with my sons is pass on what my father gave me. Um, the one thing my father didn't do was play jazz. Dad doesn't, Dad's not musical at all. Uh, Mum's the musical one. But uh, So what Dad couldn't do was provide a, an example, a living example of how do you be a jazz musician and still be in the world but not of it. And Because um, and a lot of the jazz musicians, let's face it, I'm sure you know the sort of cliche about jazz musicians, they drink too much or they do drugs or it's, you know, it's part of the entertainment industry. It's, it's all got, got all sorts of issues and it does. Um, but here was Don, who basically, apart from the fact that he was a jazz musician and wasn't a pastor, was just like my dad. 
And so he was like another father, was like another version of dad, but this one's a jazz musician, and he was an example. So I say, how does Don do it? How does Don mix with these people, live in this world, have that career, but still maintain a life that is like the one I would like to lead? And um, when you think about it, it's, it's, I mean, we're, we're sitting in a church. Isn't that what it's all about? We're looking at an example, and we look at Jesus. Isn't one of the greatest things the example? We sort of say, this is how you live. And... Um, I guess there could have been an, all sorts of ways that God could tell the people of the world how to live. But what better way than say, you know what, I don't think I'll explain, I'll show you. Watch this guy. This is how you do it. And nothing is better than an example. And so in a way, for me, coming down now just to the life of a jazz musician, um, Don was an example, was the greatest thing. And um, someone I could look to and, uh, and follow um, and work out how he dealt with things like that. So, of course, we, we call that a mentor. And I think, for me, the difference between a mentor and, a, and anything else that you might do while you're a mentor, like teaching people and, and, and guiding them and so on, is the, the feeling I get is you take responsibility. I've taught many people, and I care for them, and I want them to learn what I'm teaching, but I can't take responsibility for what they do with that. I don't, you, you, you know, uh, a mentor, and many teachers are mentors as well, of course, is when you go, no, I'm, I'm taking responsibility for this. It's now I'm going to follow this through and make sure this person is okay. And that's what Don did with me. And um, I think that's, I've felt in that way in his care. And that's how I feel about the people that I mentor. Um, it's, it's more than just passing on information. It's more than, than trying to get them to develop a skill. It's making sure they're okay. And uh, as I, I guess, by the same token, taking that back to what I was just saying, um, uh, certainly in the biggest way possible that's also what what Jesus did for us you know he said I'm not just going to show you I'm not just going to give you the information say here's what you should do I'm going to make sure you're okay I'm taking responsibility for the fact that you will be okay and um, I think that's that's a an amazing example an inspiring example and one that you know makes wanting to be a mentor um, such a strong passion for me mm. We're going to play, yeah. We're going to play one more clip just in a moment. We're going to go on to what you and your family have a done. Any more with me with hair are great. I'd say some <laughs> reliving things here. <laughs> what you and your family have done for Don in these days. Uh, but before we do, some fun facts, just to break this interview up a little fun bit. Fun facts, some yes. Fun okay, facts fun goes facts. like this. Besides being a musician, you are a pilot. Mm-hmm. Yes, oh, so I'm, do, I, do, do I say... No, that's okay, that's yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm a pilot, <laughs> pilot. Yeah. You, You're married to the lovely Judy, a mm -hmm. former Miss Australia. Mm -hmm. um, you uh, were recently nominated, by the way, for an ARIA Award for Best Jazz Album with Don, the new album yes. entitled In Good Company. Congratulations mm -hmm. for Thank that. Thank you. And also, um, you're a presenter on Top Gear Australia, mm -hmm. and you do have... Oh, I'm, I'm happy to say how mm -hmm. many cars you did have in the year 2009, and maybe how many cars you have now, but did you want to... Where's the... My wife counted them. I don't know why she did that. Um, <laughs> probably to use it against me at the next opportunity. Um, but... Um, uh, I don't have this many cars, it's how many I've had. She went back through and started researching how many cars I'd had to try and, I think it was, we were having a discussion, it was a discussion about a particular vehicle that I thought we needed and she said, we don't need this. And I'm going, yes we do. And she said, let me just tell you how many cars you've needed. Um, and uh, I believe at last count we're up to um, 150.
15 now. Um, now that's now, but that's not all at once. Um, it's never more than half a dozen, eight at a time, um, and uh, and they've all been very necessary in various ways. Um, yes. Um, but no, I have a great passion for it and love cars, and, and I've been fortunate to to um, you know be able to. Uh, uh, live that passion in various different ways. As you mentioned, being on Top Gear, um, I've done quite a bit of motor racing, all sorts of things, and uh, it's um, it's great fun. And my, my sons seem to have a bit of that because they're not as skilled as I am. That's the trouble. Um, I keep telling them, you guys can't drive yet. Um, <laughs> any fathers who have sons who think they can drive better than me will know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, they, they've got no idea. Um, <laughs> This, uh, this final clip uh, shows us that uh, this relationship that James and Don have goes far deeper than just music. Check this out. For those of us who have worked with dementia patients or have had a family member affected like it, you certainly know the power of music uh, in regards to that. My own father two years ago passed away with uh, Alzheimer's and uh, certainly know what you and your family are dealing with at this moment. And of course, the table certainly has turned on this, your friendship. You were once the student, Don, the teacher. You've taken a significant role of carer. Uh, your family has for Don. The question I'm asking is what made you step into that role and what did it mean to you to have the opportunity to do so? It's, I, I'd never really thought what made me step into the role. It's just what you do. I mean, there was Don, his family, and um, he doesn't have any other family. We're his family, and uh, um, he needed us. It was that simple. It was a shock, as you could see there. I kind of, it took me a moment to realise. I mean, when he was there and he was sick in hospital, it was simple, if I can put it that way. It was a, an elderly man who'd had a stroke who was being cared for by the hospital and we would visit him. But when it came time when he held that clarinet, that was where, and he wasn't Don. That was where I had sort of had to realisation. And it, it did feel wrong. I thought, I can't be telling Don Burroughs something about music. It doesn't, that's not how the world is. And I realised I actually need to right now and beginner stuff. And then he snapped back. But for that moment, and from that moment, although he's back playing, um, like you saw there, that part of the relationship has stayed that way. From that moment, I was looking after him, rather than him looking after me. And it, although he can play fine now, that didn't switch back. I'm still looking after him, and Judy and I look after him. And I just had this realisation, Don's not looking after me anymore. I'm now looking after him. And um, it was... It, it, well, I sort of went, all right. But it, it did take a moment to sort of take in, because it... You know, if someone's been that figure looking over you, and, and even at my age, 27, um, <laughs> no, but even at my age and after all these years, prior to Don having the stroke, even though he was a man in his 80s and I was well established, I didn't sort of need any help with my career or anything, he still had this feeling that he was looking over you and mentoring you, and he would still do that. And suddenly he said, no, that's stopped now, and, um, and you're looking after him. And it just took a moment to, to, to realise that and adjust. But the... The privilege to do that, I can never, and it's not something he would ever even think of, or, or we, we don't, it's not like that when you look after someone, it's not about repaying anybody, but in some way it does have this feeling that I get an opportunity now to in some small way um, give back what he's always been giving to me. Yeah, awesome. I, I remember reading in your book one of the quotes, and Don says, you're only as good as the company you keep, I don't know if you remember your answer, but yeah. you say, in his company... I've been my best. Yes. And that's how you feel. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He, he always used to say that. You're only as good as the company you keep. Yeah. Yes.
Um, just to wind up, uh, mm. thanks so much for answering these Not questions in regards to legacy, and uh, it's been great. Um, I, I guess the question I want to ask is that today you're in Tasmania. Next month, or next week, in fact, you could be in France, UK, Hong Kong, on a world stage somewhere. How is it that you remain grounded, and what do you find most stimulating about each city that you've played in? I'll take the last part first. Most stimulating is the people you're playing to. I, I long ago, and I don't mean that I'm blasé or that I don't appreciate travelling around the world, but I long ago stopped going, wow, I'm in France. I mean, once you do it every and all the time, that's not wow. What's, but I am still wowed. What I'm wowed by is, wow, I'm in front of a group of people again and we're having this connection through music. And um, that's the greatest thing about being anywhere in the world. Um, as, what was the first part of the question? Yep, it was uh, how you're remaining grounded. Oh, re remaining grounded. Um, well, I'm grounded today. Have you seen the weather? Um, <laughs> supposed to be flying out after, after the service, and I'm not sure whether we will. Um, there's a huge front coming through. Um, but remaining grounded is remembering a couple of things. I tell this story to my students because some of them start thinking about fame and they get affected by it. And when a visitor comes to our academy, and we have many visitors, some of them are famous and they start, you can see them treating that person differently. And um, uh, they're used to me, so I'm not famous anymore. But when they first arrive and the first years come in, it's like, there's James Morrison, you know. And um, I tell them this about fame. I've picked someone who's not famous in the room, and that could be difficult here, um, but uh, who knows, who knows. But you grab someone who's not famous, say, you and I are in a plane. We're flying somewhere, and then we have a problem. We come down, we're on a, you know, a deserted island somewhere now, and the rest of the world, to, to, to them we're gone. We're okay, we're on the island, we've got coconuts, we've got fish, we're okay. But they don't know that and they don't know where we are. It's one of those movies where you've been blown off course. Um, and so, uh, what's going to happen back in the world? They're going to put stuff on the news, James Morrison is missing, and they're going to put your picture up there because you're with me. Your picture wouldn't have been on the news other than the fact that you've gone missing in a plane. And it'll get more airplay because one of the people in the plane's famous. You know, that's the way the world works. So they'll put your name up, they'll talk about you, they'll probably interview your mother or your brother, and people will get to know your family on the news, they'll get to know your name. You're the one missing in the plane with James Morrison. The search continues. And the longer it goes on, the, you know, it'll get more light. And eventually they may, you know, um, stop the search. Now, you've become famous. Because famous means everyone knows you and they would recognise you. And if you suddenly walked into Woolies, they go, that's the person from the plane. So, and they may know your name. Oh, there's Sarah or there's Roger. So I said, you've become famous. Now, apart from what we might learn on the island about fishing and getting coconuts open, you haven't changed. You're the same. So who's changed? If you weren't famous and you are famous and something's changed, who has changed? I always say, not what. And what it is is everyone else. In your minds at the moment, you don't know Roger. Once he's on the news, you know Roger. So there's something new in your mind. Your opinion of Roger has changed because before you didn't have one and now you do from all the stories. He was a great student, blah, blah, blah. He had a big future, whatever. You have changed. Roger hasn't. So when Roger comes back because they find us and he's famous, he goes, oh, I'm famous now. No, you haven't changed, Roger. Everyone else has. And fame is about everyone else and what they think of you, not you. The famous person is the one person who should be most unaffected by fame because mm. it doesn't have anything to do with them. It has to do with everyone else. And I teach them that and say, so when you're, whether you're famous or not has to do with everyone else. It's nothing to do with you. What you want to concentrate on is perhaps, perhaps, what you're famous for. If it's for being skilled at something, if it's for offering something great to the world or sharing your gift, concentrate on the gift and what you're sharing, not on the fame, because that's to do with everyone else. And 
um, remaining grounded, if you take that concept of this is not about me, if you take that concept into everything in your family, it's not about you, I'm your father, you know, you're going to do this, you go, why am I speaking like that? And I rarely do because Harry's too big. But, um, but it's for you, not for me. I don't need to be your father and like have some sort of authority. I need to use it occasionally to try and help you. And that concept of all I'm responsible for about me is my relationship you know, to all the people around me, to God and my life and making sure I live that as best I can. All the other stuff is about everyone else and I share what I can with them. And that keeps you very grounded because anytime you start thinking, well, I'm, uh, I'm pretty good, I've just been made the managing director or I've just become famous or I've just got, finally got the, uh, the S-class, the big one, you know, whatever, in a car or anything that might make you feel a bit more important, you go, it's not you. Even if you've got a really, really fancy, nice car, the car's fancy and nice, not you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just have the privilege of, of owning it very temporarily, might I add, because you're not taking it with you. So it's the car, not you. If it, if it is a great something that people have created, enjoy it, appreciate it. But it's not you. you it's a privilege if you get to use it. And if you have that attitude about everything, um, then uh, it's not only is it how do you stay grounded, it's how could you be anything else? Mm. You know? Good answer. Yeah. Well, what great answers. Thanks so much. And um, I just want to finish off by saying that we'd love to hear you playing again just one more last time for today. Is that okay? Yeah, <laughs> but just quickly, your music, your life, and your example gives many people around not just this nation, but around the world hope. Your legacy, we pray and believe, will live on. Can we thank, one more time, Mr. James Morrison. Thank you. Thank you.